Hello, and welcome to the Herodotus Podcast. This is Episode 5, War on Land and Music at Sea, Book 1, Chapters 15-25. through 25. Last time on the podcast, we talked about Gyges, the ancestor of Croesus, king of Lydia. In this episode, we'll talk more about Croesus's ancestors, the Myrmnad kings, and the war between Lydia and the city of Miletus. We'll also hear, in typical Herodotus fashion, about a magic dolphin ride. But more on that later. Herodotus concludes his discussion of Gyges with a brief summary of the king's military exploits, namely his attacks on Miletus and Smyrna and his capture of Colophon. These were all Greek cities on the coast of Asia Minor, which is to say the western shore of the Aegean. Herodotus then curtly dismisses Gyges, writing, But since he accomplished no other great deed in his thirty-two-year reign, I shall pass over him and turn to his son Artis, who succeeded him on the throne. This isn't exactly the case, as I'll discuss after the conclusion of the narrative. Artis's reign is similarly briefly touched upon, although one point in Herodotus's summary stands out. Artis also made war on Miletus, conquered Priene, another Greek city on the Aegean coast, and, quote, during his reign over Sardis, the capital of Lydia, the Cimmerians, driven from their own territory by the nomadic Scythians, arrived in Asia Minor and conquered Sardis, except for its citadel. End quote. This would appear to have been a fairly significant event, but Herodotus does not dwell on it. Though, again, I will after we finish this episode's narrative. Instead, the historian forges ahead, sketching out the Myrmnad dynastic line. Artis, who reigned for 49 years, followed by Sariates, who reigned for 12, followed by Aliates. And it is on Aliates that the narrative now settles. He, we are told, inherited yet another war against the city of Miletus from his father. Miletus was a logical target of Lydian expansion. It was one of the leading cities of Ionia, a region on the central coast of Asia Minor, densely populated with Greek-speaking cities, including Colophon, Smyrna, and Priene, places that I mentioned earlier. Positioned as it was on the Aegean, facing Greece, Miletus was ideally situated as a commercial center, an entrepot for goods traveling between the east and the west. It prospered, growing extremely wealthy from trade, and even establishing colonies on the coast of the Black Sea. Miletus and Ionia will also, as we shall see, play pivotal roles at the start of the First Greco-Persian War, many years hence. King Aliades's father, Satiates, had developed a novel technique for attacking Miletus, and Aliades kept up the stratagem. Since the coastal location and the naval power of the city made any attempt at besieging it pointless, Aliades would invade at harvest time, at the head of an army marching to the sound of harps and pipes. He would instruct his army to destroy all the crops they encountered, but leave the houses and farmsteads standing, so that the Milesians could re-sow and replant, and so that in the following year he could repeat the tactic. 
it's not clear how successful this strategy actually was, since between the two kings, the Lydians had employed it for eleven years running. It was in the twelfth year, however, that events took a turn. Whipped up by a strong wind, the crop fires set by the Lydians spread, destroying a temple to the goddess Athena at Assosos in Milesian territory. Aliades returned to Sardis as normal, unaware that anything was out of the ordinary. But soon he fell ill. When he found that his illness could not be treated, he sent messengers to Delphi to ask Apollo what to do about it. The priestess responded that she would give no answer until the temple of Athena was rebuilt. This, Herodotus notes, he knows because the Delphians told him so. And he turns to the Milesian side of the story to add further detail. When Periander, the tyrant of Corinth, heard what the oracle had told the Lydians, he gave a heads-up to the ruler of Miletus, Thrasybulus. Thus forewarned, Thrasybulus and the Milesians were ready when envoys from Aliades arrived at their city to ask for a truce, so that the Lydians could rebuild the temple their fires had inadvertently destroyed. But Thrasybulus had a plan. The Milesian ruler ordered all the food left in the city, whether from private or public sources, even from his own stocks, to be piled together in the marketplace. As the Lydian messengers approached, Thrasybulus instructed the Milesians to start feasting and drinking when he gave the word. The word was soon given, and the representatives of Aliates arrived to a scene of carousing and festivity. Like something out of an ancient Greek version of the sting, the con worked, and the envoys, convinced that the Milesians possessed an abundance of food, returned to Aliates to tell him of what they had seen. The king was shocked. He had presumed that his strategy had left Miletus on the brink of starvation. But this new information, that the Milesians were actually feasting, made him rethink his approach. Aliades immediately made peace with Miletus, and in this way the war came to an end. The Lydians and the Milesians became allies, and Aliades built not one but two temples at Assosos. Referring to Thrasybulus's bluff, Herodotus interjects, I have learned that it was this, and nothing else, that brought about the reconciliation. At this point in the narrative, we might now expect another story about Aliates, or about Lydia, or perhaps about Miletus, all of which have been central to the just-concluded section of the text. But no! Instead, Herodotus begins the first of the numerous stories that have been called digressions. He turns to Periander, the tyrant of Corinth, who has just now appeared, briefly mentioned as a friend and ally of Thrasybulus. The historian does this in order to repeat a truly incredible story that, while entertaining, has nothing really to do with the situation at hand. Typical Herodotus. The most wondrous thing ever to happen to Periander involved the musician Arion of Methymna when he landed at Tynarus in southern Greece after being brought there by a dolphin. Arion, a real-life historical figure, was the best lyre player of his age, 
and an important innovator in musical forms. Active at Periander's court in Corinth, Ariane decided to make some money by touring Italy and Sicily, and then to return to Corinth. When it was time to come back from Italy, he chose to hire a specifically Corinthian ship to take him home. After all, who could be more trustworthy to someone who had lived in Corinth and was a friend of the city's ruler? But, as it happened, Arian chose poorly. Once the ship was out to sea, the crew decided to rob Arian and toss him overboard. Upon realizing this, the musician begged them to take his money, but at least spare his life. But the crew was merciless. They gave him a choice. He could either kill himself on board, so that he could be easily buried on land, or he could jump into the sea. Facing this choice that was really no choice at all, Arian asked if they would at least let him sing to them one last time, after which he would take his own life. The piratical crew readily agreed. Who would turn down a chance to hear the last ever concert of the best musician of the age? And so Arian, decked out in full musical regalia and accompanying himself on his lyre, sang a hymn to Apollo while standing on the ship's stern. When he was finished, he immediately leapt into the sea. The crew, thinking that was that, sailed back to Corinth. However, when Arian jumped, he landed on the back of a dolphin which carried him safely to Tynarus, from where he traveled back to Corinth. He even managed to beat the sailors home. I guess magical dolphins are pretty fast. Upon arriving, he immediately told Periander everything that had happened. Not unreasonably, but the ruler was skeptical. He kept Arian under guard and waited for the sailors to return. When they did, he pressed them for news of the singer. When they reported that he was safe and sound back in Italy, Arian suddenly appeared, again in full regalia, just as he had been dressed when they witnessed his supposed death. Utterly amazed, the sailors could no longer deny the truth. And so, Herodotus adds, Arian dedicated a small bronze monument at Tynarus, the very place where he came ashore, fittingly depicting a man riding upon a dolphin. This digression over, Herodotus wraps up Aliades' portion of the narrative. After the war against the Milesians, Aliades, like his great-grandfather Gyges before him, sent a gift offering to Delphi, in this instance a huge silver bowl on an iron stand. He died after a reign of 57 years. The narrative now turns to his son, Croesus, whom Herodotus earlier identified as the first barbarian to have made war on the Greeks, and whose entry into the narrative returns us to the thread that will eventually lead us to the Greco-Persian Wars. But we will deal with all that in our next episode. Earlier, I remarked that Herodotus's rather brief account of the end of Gyges' reign, which was essentially... Gyges attacked a few cities, but did nothing else of note, so let's move on, wasn't accurate. Let me elaborate. Last episode, 
I mentioned the correspondence between Gyges and the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal. Gyges had written to Ashurbanipal asking for help with invaders who had been pillaging Lydia. Invaders who were, as a matter of fact, the Cimmerians. Now wait a moment, you may be indignantly exclaiming. A little while ago, Herodotus said that the Cimmerians attacked Lydia during the reign of Gyges' son Ardis, not under Gyges. And indeed, that's exactly what Herodotus reports. But again, from a number of Assyrian sources, we know that the Cimmerians migrated into Asia Minor in the late 700s BCE, well before Artis's, or indeed Gyges' kingship. The identity and geographic origins of the Cimmerians are a matter of some dispute, but it's generally agreed that they arrived from the Pontic Steppe, north of the Black Sea. They were one of the many waves of peoples from the vast Eurasian steppes that were forced to migrate due to disturbances from other steppe tribes, a process that would continue on and off for well over a thousand years, later displacing such peoples as the Goths, the Huns, and the Turks. In the late 700s, the Cimmerians made their way down through the Caucasus into the area that is today divided between Armenia, Turkey, and Iran. After repeated unsuccessful attacks on the Assyrians, the greatest power in the region, a large group of Cimmerians headed westward, into Anatolia, eventually reaching Lydia and Ionia. The Ionian poet Callinus describes the Cimmerian attack on his hometown, Ephesus, in 650, in quietly terrifying terms, writing, Now the Cimmerian army advances, committing violent acts. Herodotus, when writing about the Cimmerians, uses one word that's worth dwelling upon. You'll recall that the historian says that the Cimmerians were, quote, driven from their own territory by the nomadic Scythians, end quote. Do you notice the distinction that he draws in that sentence? The Scythians, whom Herodotus will explore in depth later in the narrative, were a nomadic people. Their forces consisted of bands of men on horseback. By contrast, the Cimmerians were not nomads. On the contrary, they had their own territory and were not an inherently mobile population. Later, in Book 4, Herodotus describes the mass migration of the Cimmerians, which includes women and children. As such, while the Cimmerians were no doubt a destructive force, as the Assyrians, Herodotus, and Calinus all describe, they were not out solely to loot and pillage, like the stereotypical marauding barbarians, but rather to find a new place to settle. Unfortunately for them, they weren't able to find any. This undercuts somewhat the image of Conan the Barbarian, surely the best-known Cimmerian in popular culture, since the real-life Cimmerians were primarily interested in neither crushing their enemies, seeing them driven before them, nor hearing the lamentations of their women. Regardless of the Cimmerians' intentions, Gyges faced repeated Cimmerian invasions of Lydia, in 658 and 657 BCE, when he contacted Ashurbanipal and was able to successfully repel the invaders. But his end finally came in 644, 
when yet another Cimmerian force defeated the Lydians, sacked Sardis, and killed Gyges. How do we know this? Well, among other sources, from Ashurbanipal himself. In a surviving account of the Assyrian king's reign, written in the monarch's own words, the king, after recounting the time Gyges asked him for help, describes how Gyges then didn't pay him the expected tribute, and even aided the king of Egypt, who had been rebelling against Assyrian rule. Ashurbanipal then gloatingly describes Gyges' downfall. Let me read an excerpt from the text. Gyges' messenger, whom he kept sending to me to bring me greetings, he suddenly discontinued, because he did not heed the word of Ashur, the god who created me, but trusted in his own strength and hardened his heart. He sent his forces to the aid of the king of Egypt, who had thrown off the yoke of my sovereignty. I heard of it and prayed to Ashur and Ishtar, saying, May his body be cast before his enemy, may they carry off his limbs. The Cimmerians, whom he had trodden underfoot by calling upon my name, invaded and overpowered the whole of his land. His son seated himself upon the throne after his father. He sent me, by the hand of his messenger, an account of the evil which the gods, my helpers, visited upon him in answer to my prayers. And he laid hold of my royal feet, saying, Thou art the king whom the god has favored. Thou didst curse my father, and evil was visited upon him. I am thy slave, who fears thee. Be gracious unto me, and I will bear thy yoke. So much for royal modesty. Now, why didn't Herodotus know about this Cimmerian invasion and Gyges' death, which would certainly have been worthy of at least a mention? The most likely explanation is that the historian, or his sources, conflated the invasion during which Gyges died with another attack on Sardis that took place when Artis was on the throne. It was during this later assault that the entire city, except this time its citadel, from which Artis presumably mounted a defense, was sacked. Furthermore, the second attack wasn't mounted by the Cimmerians, but rather by an allied tribe, the Treres. An easy enough mistake to make, in the absence of official records and writing some 200 years after the fact. Aliades, during his time on the throne, was finally able to inflict a major victory against the Cimmerians. So major, in fact, that he seems to have driven them from Asia Minor and out of the historical record entirely. Let's now turn to the narrative itself. A little while ago, I made a crack about how the story of Arian had no substantive connection to the material that preceded it, and that's clearly true. Narratively speaking, it doesn't logically follow from Aliates' war with Miletus. Indeed, classicist Alan Griffiths has remarked that Arian's story, quote, is told without even a token semblance of proper motivation, end quote. And, to flip ahead a few hundred pages for a moment, Herodotus will discuss Periander and Corinth at length in Book 5. It would have been far more natural to include Arian's tale somewhere at that point in the text, where it would have been possible to build in a stronger narrative connection than, 
Oh yeah, that reminds me. It would have been far more natural if narrative coherence were the driving force behind the arrangement of information in the histories. But then, it isn't. As we explored in episode 3, Herodotus begins the whole narrative by setting up the idea of East versus West in concrete terms, introducing the idea of tissus, or divine retribution, two threads that he weaves throughout the entirety of the histories. Similarly, the Arian story, seemingly so out of place, adds another thematic strand to the narrative. Alan Griffiths, while conceding the tenuous narrative link between the Arian story and what came before, nevertheless surmises that, quote, it was important to Herodotus to introduce a tale about divine justice at the earliest possible moment in order to put down a programmatic marker for the course of the whole histories, end quote. Divine justice, the flip side of divine retribution, is a motif that will recur throughout the text, and it's here that we first see it in action, through Arion's miraculous rescue. Classicist Vivian Gray observes another thematic connection between the Aliates and Arian narratives. Both conclude with a dedication given in thanks to a god, Aliates being the silver bowl at Delphi, and Arians being the monument at Tynarus. Furthermore, Gray notes, since the very end of Aliati's story, his dedication of the bowl, is put off until after the Arian story concludes, the two dedications come one after another, highlighting their similarity. So, then, what first appears to be a woolly tangent can in fact be seen as a carefully situated moment in the text. As Felix Jacobi, one of the most important classicists of the first half of the 20th century, has noted, it is hardly an exaggeration to say that Herodotus's entire art of organizing his material consists in how and at what point he is able to incorporate digressions. And speaking of dedicatory offerings, Aldeides's silver bowl and Arian's bronze dolphin rider stand not just as thematic capstones, but as another type of Herodotian proof. We've discussed gnome, judgment, and a koe, oral tradition, to which we can now add opsis, the act of looking, which is to say, looking at material proof. By ending these two stories of divine intervention, which a person might reasonably doubt, with mentions of physical objects, Herodotus is implicitly rebutting those who would challenge his veracity. Go to Delphi. Go to Tynarus, he's saying, and look for yourself. There's the proof of what I'm telling you. Of course, whether the monument at Tynarus actually represented Arian or another very possibly mythological figure is another question, and, alas, not one that could be answered with any certainty. Next time, we'll take up the story of Croesus proper his military victories over the Greeks of Ionia, and his discussions about the meaning of life with the sage Solon of Athens. See you next time on the Herodotus Podcast.